Welcome to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Along with my brother Rick, we do examine current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Rick, we're watching world events on really on a daily basis to understand where we are in God's time plan. That's right, Jimmy. We do, as we do every week, we'll have our geopolitical expert Ken Timmerman on. He'll talk to us about what's going on in Iran and then in the Ukraine. And we'll also have Dave Dolan, and he focuses on the Middle East and Israel in particular. A few very interesting updates about the Temple Mount. But Jimmy, in the second half hour, we're going to move away kind of a little bit from current events, and we're going to look a little bit deeper into why we study Bible prophecy, how Bible prophecy inspires us, how it motivates us, and how how it informs how we should act in the future. And so we have uh, Dr. Paul Weaver. One of the favorite statements that he said is that your theology should dictate how you behave, and I think that's just such a great thought. Yes, in fact, that's going to be our theme today. As we are examining current events, we do that because we understand what the Bible and theology are talking about. And really, uh, our eschatology helps us to understand how God's plan is going to be worked out. Well, Rick, let's get started today. We've got Ken Timmerman standing by. Ken Timmerman joins us. He's our geopolitical affairs expert. Ken, thank you for joining us today. It's always a pleasure to be with you, Rick. Thank you. Well, Ken, I know that you were in Sweden, and if I did not know that your wife was Swedish, I might have thought you would have been there doing something to negotiate Sweden's entry into NATO. <laughs> well, Rick, I tell you, we're out here in the countryside, and uh, I haven't yet seen the Swedish army coming around to pick up the weapons they've stockpiled everywhere, but I know they will sooner or later. <laughs> well, very interesting. We never know where we're going to find you, that is for sure. Well, let's get started here quickly. We'll start this week in Iran. There are reports coming out now that they are just three months away from nuclear weapons. Well, the Iranian nuclear weapons program has probably got to be the slowest crash program in history. <laughs> They've been three months away from nuclear weapons for 20 years, uh, just about. But this is getting more serious because these are actual verified quantities of highly enriched uranium that have been declared publicly to the International Atomic Energy Agency. So this is not a secret enrichment program. This is what the Iranians have actually acknowledged to doing. David Albright, who is uh, one of my go-to guys on Iran's nuclear weapons program, he's a former IAEA inspector, uh, he is the one who came out with this latest calculation. Uh, they already have, according to him, enough highly enriched uranium. This is over 60% enriched to make a nuclear weapon today. Uh, and within six months, he believes that they could have enough for six weapons. So this is a rapidly expanding program. Uh, the Iranians know no constraints and their negotiations with the United States and the Europeans are really uh, just seeking a means to continue this clandestine and now public nuclear weapons program. Well, I know an Iran with nuclear weapons and nuclear power there would definitely destabilize the Middle East, but they're not really even waiting until they get nuclear weapons to destabilize the Middle East, are they? No, and that's what's so interesting about a nuclear-armed Iran. We already see them destabilizing Yemen, destabilizing Iraq, destabilizing Lebanon, Syria, without nuclear weapons. Just imagine what would happen with a nuclear-armed Iran. Uh, they would be far more aggressive than they are today. 
In Iraq just this past week, they got their proxies in the Iraqi parliament to pass a really extraordinary law that would criminalize with the death penalty any Iraqi who sought to do business or recognize the state of Israel. Now, this is amazing because after 20 years of U.S. involvement on the ground in Iraq, we have essentially gotten Iraq to recognize Israel in a de facto way. You no longer uh, need to have a second passport. When I go to Iraq these days, I don't have to use a second passport to get in. I can show my passport with Israeli passport stamps. They don't care. Well, if this law goes into effect, I won't be able to do that any longer. And no Iraqi will be able to even talk about peace with the state of Israel or doing business with the state of Israel. After 20 years of engagement, this is what we get. And it it really is, it it breaks my heart in a way, Rick, because I know pro-Israeli Iraqi lawmakers who have been thrilled by being able to talk about Israel, by being able to talk about Iraq's interest in Israel, about Iraqi Jews who live in Israel uh, as being Iraqis and Jews. Now all these people face jail time is a huge setback that we are are facing now. And and this at the same time as the United Arab Emirates has just signed new commercial deals with the state of Israel. It's it's a shame, frankly. Well, as we continue to talk about Iran, I want to bring your attention or the listeners' attention to an article that was written by none other than yourself, Ken, in the website Front Page Mag. And it just talks about the way that the Iranian government and the Iranian Secret Service is operating. They play hardball, don't they? They do play hardball. And uh, I got keyed into this particular story by you a couple of weeks ago, Rick, when you pointed out a piece from the Times of Israel about a conference uh, organized by a European organization in Zurich, Switzerland, bringing Israeli researchers to Zurich uh, this past January. And it turned out the Israeli intelligence service said, "Uh uh-uh, it's actually not a real conference. It's a fake that's been set up by the Iranian government. And here, by the way, is the email that they sent out to a number of Israelis. Well, I saw that email and I did a double take because I said, gee, I got exactly the same email to exactly the same conference. And uh, it won't be the first time that the Iranians have tried to go after me. So I wrote Hmm. a piece in front page mag pegged to the assassination in Tehran of a Quds Force colonel, an Iranian colonel, who may have been linked to these efforts to lure Israelis and lure people like me uh, into a trap where we could be kidnapped and then taken to Tehran. It's something that uh, the Iranians have done repeatedly with Iranian exiles. They've done it with people who've been politically active uh, against the regime. Now it looks like they're uh, trying to expand their horizon to get Israelis and people like me as well. As I say uh, in the article, it's not the first time they've gone after me. They have identified me for years as uh, the head of the CIA's clandestine program against the Iranian regime. It's hilarious in a way because, alas, the CIA has not had any program uh, targeting the Iranian regime for just about 20 years. Uh, I wish they had one. Uh, It might actually help. Well, Ken, I know I speak for all of us when I say make sure you're staying safe. And I don't know. I don't think they could keep up with you with as much as you get around. So we should be good there. Well, Ken, I'd like to uh, 
turn our attention to Ukraine. And it does say a little bit something, I think, for the last uh, several months here. The lead story, when I've talked with you, has been Ukraine. And this is the first time we have put that story in second place now. Um, We started off with Iran today. And I'm just wondering, uh, this war has gone on for so long, it's starting to become uh, commonplace. Can you tell us a little bit about where we are in the war right now and give us an update there? Well, becoming commonplace, but the killing is continuing. The Russians are uh, doing what everybody expected them to do in the eastern Ukraine, in the Donbass region. They are destroying major cities. Uh, They've occupied now, according to President Zelensky, approximately 20 percent of the territory of Ukraine. By the way, this is about what they've had since uh, 2014. Uh, They've only increased their occupation by a little bit after four months of brutal, brutal occupation on the ground and this attempt to take Kiev, this attempt to, to expand their, their hold on the Donbass. But they're going after large cities. And the United States now, uh, this past week, is sending uh, the Ukrainians long-range, high-precision, uh, multiple rocket launch systems that the Russians are very worried about because they don't have anything quite like it. This will outclass their artillery on the ground. We are now seeing that the war in eastern Ukraine has become an artillery battle. So the U.S. is weighing in on this, I think, in a relatively serious way. This is getting to look like many of Russia's wars or its proxy wars in Iraq and Syria, a long, hard slog. Well, Ken, let's hope that the killing does subside or that we reach some type of agreement for that to end because there is certainly a human cost. Let me go back. I was looking at some old programs that you actually did with my father on Prophecy Today, and at one point you called Russia a gas station with nuclear weapons, and I thought that was very interesting. But what that means is really the main source of income for their economy, what keeps Russia moving is their oil exports. And I'm just wondering, we have been sanctioning them. The European Union recently did a few things. Uh, can you tell us, Ken, are those sanctions working? Uh, well, they, they are just kicking in, Rick. And this is something that's hard for us to understand in the United States. You watch the, the news at night and, and you get the impression that uh, we're really sanctioning Russia very, very hard. But in fact, many of the sanctions that were announced in February and March are just kicking in now. That is the reason why you've had a recent spike in oil, because the oil sanctions by the United States just kicked in a couple of weeks ago. Uh, The European Union, which had also agreed to oil sanctions, their sanctions are just kicking in now. And uh, some of those sanctions will actually be delayed a couple couple of months for other European countries. But but those sanctions have been gradually phasing in. They've given companies two and three months to be able to sort out their contracts. But Russia's reaction to this has been quite adept. They've shifted their efforts to China, where they're selling uh, much bigger quantities of oil and gas than in the past, and to places like Serbia uh, in Europe, where they just this past week signed a new deal to supply natural gas. So Serbia, even though it is a member of the European Union, has kind of wriggled out of that alliance and gone back with their brother Slavs to help them uh, in their economic difficulties. Well, Ken, we appreciate you taking time out of your busy day there in Sweden. I hope you enjoy yourself when you're visiting with your wife's family. But thank you for updating our listeners on geopolitical affairs. And uh, we'll tune in next week when not only do we hear your next update, but we also play the game, Where in the World is Ken Timmerman Today? 
<laughs> Rick, it's always a pleasure to be with you. God bless. That's Ken Timmerman. Great job, Ken. Well, we got to take a break, and when we come back, David Dolan with our Middle East News Update, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. I'm Ruth Kramer with Mission Network News. The World Bank extends one more year of financial aid to Lebanon despite political bickering. Inflation reached 206% in April, and Lebanon's currency dropped yet again last week. There are shortages on everything from electricity to fuel to bread. Heart for Lebanon offers help for today and hope for tomorrow. Ask God to strengthen and encourage believers. They're staying in the country to care for people in need. And what are you doing at 111 today? While the Alliance for the Unreached invites you to set aside a few minutes to pray for the unreached at 111 for the next 33 days. The challenge begins on the International Day for the Unreached on Pentecost Sunday, June 5th. Marv Newell, Executive Director for the Alliance for the Unreached, encourages you to learn about different unreached groups and pray specifically for them. The movement brings awareness that roughly a third of the world's population has been denied access to the gospel. Links and more at our website. Mission Network News, service of One-Way Ministries. I'm Ruth Kramer. Have you ever wanted to know more about God's plan for the future? Have you ever tried to understand prophetic passages in God's Word, like, say, the book of Revelation, and been frustrated at not being able to figure it out? Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's latest CD series, Keys for Unlocking God's Plan for the Future, will help you gain the ability to understand where to start in your study of prophecy and allow you to read God's Word in a new and exciting way. Understanding God's prophetic Word will allow you to live a pure and productive life until Jesus returns for the church. Keys will help you gain the tools you need to understand the end-time events as foretold in God's Word. Dr. DeYoung lays out a systematic approach to Bible prophecy for those who want to know God's plan for the future. Tracks included are A Roadmap Through the End Times, The Jew in Jerusalem, Daniel and the Antichrist, Ezekiel and Messiah's Temple, and Revelation and Babylon. To order your copy of Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's Keys for Unlocking God's Plan for the Future, visit our website at prophecytoday.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today Radio, the program that looks at current events in the light of God's prophetic word. We've reached a part of the program right now where we have our Middle East news update. And to do that, we have our good friend Dave Dolan with us. Dave, thank you for joining us today. Glad to be with you, Rick. Well, Dave, we spent a lot of time talking last week about the upcoming Flag Day March. Now, that march took place last Sunday, and the response was not what was anticipated. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Well, as we made clear last week, the Palestinian uh, Hamas and Islamic Jihad groups backed by Hezbollah in Lebanon and also Iran itself, all issuing very harsh warnings of a fierce response, of a military response. If the annual flag march did pass through Damascus Gate, and if any Jews did go up on the Temple Mount. Well, in the end, both things did happen. About 8,000 Jews went through the Damascus Gate entrance into the Old City in the Arab Quarter and then marched with flags waving down to the uh, Western Wall Plaza. Uh, About the same number came in from Jaffa Gate. And um, during that uh, day, around 2,600 Uh, Jews, most of them not the marchers, but some others, uh, went up onto the Temple Mount to celebrate uh, the reunification of Jerusalem in 1967. That's what the day is all about. And that was a record number, Rick, 
at any one time since 1967, any one day of Jews that were allowed up there. And uh, the Palestinians uh, all issued strong denunciations and more warnings and all sorts of rhetoric, but no rockets were actually launched. And um, opinion survey in the Gaza Strip showed that most Palestinians were expecting that a new war would start. There'd been uh, people buying up extra food and supplies in the days before the march. Many Israelis, of course, also thought that these threats would turn into actual attacks, but it didn't happen. The Israelis were very thankful for that. Of course, I ended last week by asking for prayer. Many others were doing the same, and um, the Lord uh, answered that prayer. It was a pretty peaceful march. There were scuffles. There were a few people arrested, but uh, certainly no rockets. And of course, the 11-day war last May began on Jerusalem Day during the parade. So that was the uh, worry that that would happen again. But so far, it hasn't uh, broken out. It doesn't mean tensions are gone between the Israelis and the uh, Gaza Strip and Hezbollah. Uh, The exact opposite is the case. But uh, at least for the moment, it's still peaceful. Well, speaking of Iran, that is one nation that Israel is not going to be signing a peace treaty with anytime soon. In fact, they just had a basically a full-scale Israeli Air Force simulation of a strike on Iran. Amazing stuff going on, Rick. Yes, the largest ever military drills in Israel's history. They actually flew dozens of aircraft over to Cyprus on Wednesday during the night. And they staged attacks on the coast of Cyprus. Of course, the Cypriots agreed to all this in advance and knew what was going on and warned people that it would be happening so there'd be no alarm. But they they did mock dives on towns and cities. They said it was mainly uh, to practice a potential war with Hezbollah in Lebanon. But the distance that they traveled was similar to what you would travel to get to Iran and Israeli news reports again stated that American aircraft were involved and that they were refueling these Israeli jets as they went to Cyprus and especially, of course, on the way back when they would need it the most. So um, very interesting developments. And of course, it is designed. The uh, chariots of fire exercises all this month, the largest ever in Israel's history, designed to deter Iran from attacking Israel but also to prepare for a possible preemptive strike, especially since the uh, negotiations with Iran, the international negotiations over the nuclear deal seem to have stalled. The Iranians keep bringing up new demands, and apparently the Biden administration has finally said, okay, that's it. We don't see any peace treaty coming or any nuclear agreement coming uh, there. So Israel, if you feel you have to strike, since, again, Israeli leaders are warning they are on the verge of having full nuclear weapons capability, uh, then uh, the Americans apparently will support that, and uh, hopefully other Western countries as well. Well, we turn our attention to Israel now, and one of the things that we do on this program is we look for signs at how near the rapture of the church could be. And one of the things that we've identified on this program in the past is Aliyah, the immigration or return of Jews from around the world to the land of Israel. And there's been some news on that front this week in Ethiopia. 
Well, that's right, Rick. The uh, Aliyah from Ethiopia has resumed after being delayed for over a year uh, due to several reasons. The fighting in Tigray province in part of uh, Ethiopia's uh, involved and some other things. But yes, a flight arrived this week at Ben Gurion Airport uh, carrying 180 Ethiopian immigrants, most of them uh, with family already here. One young man had his mother in Israel for 10 years already and is seeing her again for the first time. A lot of joy. And they plan to continue the flights through November and bring a total of 3,000 new immigrants from Ethiopia to Israel. Uh, that would bring the total number of Ethiopian immigrants since 1991 to well over 40,000. So quite a large community in Israel. And of course, we also have stepped up immigration from Ukraine, due naturally to the war, and from Russia. Uh, more and more Jews there are inquiring about moving to Israel. And, uh, you know, anti-Semitism continues in Europe and America and other places. So the stream from France and England and the U.S. is also continuing. Well, David, my final question, uh, I there was an article this week done by a man named Yehuda Glick. I believe he's a rabbi. He was a Likud member of the Knesset. He has actually been on several of our videos, including our Ready to Rebuild Revisited DVD that we put out, talking about the rebuilding of the temple. And he had an opinion article in the Jerusalem Post saying that it's time to let Jews pray on the Temple Mount. Yes, and he's always advocated that. Uh, he's been known for that over the years. But his op-ed piece was quite poignant. He said, we took this area in 1967. It was a miraculous short war. And basically, the Lord God delivered the Temple Mount to us, and we refused to take it over. And we could have done that. And I spoke about that last week, that Moshe Dayan, the defense minister at the time, and other Israeli leaders decided, no, we'll leave it in Muslim hands and we'll just, you know, allow some Jewish activity up there. Well, it's been very, very limited. It is changing, as I've stated. We've had more Jews up there praying over the past couple of years than over the past decades combined. So it is definitely going in that direction. But he basically, well, I'll quote something. He said, 55 years is too long. The Temple Mount is our responsibility. So for 55 years, it's been left under Islamic control with Israel just overall in control. He's saying it's time to up that. And an opinion poll shows that uh, half of all Israelis, this was just published this week, support Jewish prayer up on the Temple Mount. Interestingly enough, the ultra-Orthodox um, groups in Israel are opposed for the most part. They believe you can't go anywhere where the temple might have stood. It will desecrate it if you go over the site of the Holy of Holies. So uh, they don't go up there, but a majority of Israelis uh, do support it. 40% said no, because uh, mainly because it will cause problems, not because they don't see it as something that should happen. But Yehuda Glick, very much an advocate for prayer and for Jewish visits on the Temple Mount. And again, the largest number we've ever seen in one day since 1967 took place just this last Sunday on Jerusalem Day. 
Well, David, I know you lived in Israel for a long time. When we did our original Ready to Rebuild video, it was kind of a fringe concept. You had the Temple Mount Faithful, you had the Temple Institute, certain people, certain places that were getting ready, but it was on the on the fringes. Now it is slowly moving into mainstream and definitely seems like heading towards the possibility that the temple could be rebuilt soon. Well, it is moving in that direction. You're you're quite correct. When I moved there in 1980, you hardly heard any talk about it except for from a few very, very small groups. And now it's obviously a topic people are discussing and uh, secular Israelis are weighing in on it as well. So uh, it's moving in that direction. But you did say slowly, and I would say that's the key word here because uh, the polls do show that a vast majority of Israelis believe it would start World War III essentially to uh, make any moves to rebuild the temple. And so it's uh, it's got a lot of resistance as well as support, but uh, it's moving in that direction. Well, certainly one of those things that we look at is we try to determine how close we are to the next main event uh, on God's calendar events, the rapture of the church. So I appreciate you coming on and talking to our people about this today, Dave, and we'll look forward to talking to you soon. Thank you, Rick. God bless. Well, we got to take a break. And when we come back, Paul Scharf talking about the regeneration of the earth at the time of the millennial kingdom. And Dr. Paul Weaver, how to study Bible prophecy right here on Prophecy Today weekend. Just how close are we to the rapture of the church? Do events taking place in the Middle East and around the world have prophetic significance? In his latest book, Sound the Trumpets, Jimmy DeYoung examines these questions and explains just how near the rapture of the church could possibly be. By comparing four trends from prophetic scripture to current events taking place in the world today, Jimmy shows that the stage is set, every actor is in place, and the curtain is about to go up on the end-time scenario set forth in the scriptures. Sound the Trumpets is a must-read for every serious student of Bible prophecy. To order your copy of Jimmy DeYoung's new book, Sound the Trumpets, for only $15, call us today at 8-PROPHECY-8. That's 877-674-3298. Or visit us on the World Wide Web at prophecytoday.com. Call today and make sure to get your copy of Sound the Trumpets. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung, Jr., and along with my brother Rick, we have been examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. And I suppose the theme for this program uh, this weekend would be understanding how uh, the Bible and theology really dictate how we live, how we, um, how we, and our thinking process about life, our day-to-day thoughts, and making decisions. Uh, also, how Bible prophecy, really our eschatology, determines our theology. And that's so very important as to why we do this program as we examine the events of this world, why they are taking place, and how it relates to future uh, prophetic events that are yet to be um, fulfilled. The next prophecy, of course, to be fulfilled would be the rapture of the church. And uh, that's the imminent event. Uh, That's what we look for. That's what we live for. That's the hope that's found within us as we are living in this world, how we can understand and, and really deal with 
troublesome times in which we're living. Well, a new partner that we have on the program that uh, came on with us last week, who's been an, an old friend of the ministry, well, an older friend, a longtime friend, I guess I should say, Paul Scharf. Paul, welcome to the program again. Thank you, Jimmy. It's great to be back with you. Yes, and of course your ministry is with Friends of Israel. You have a speaking ministry. You're in conferences. You'll be in uh, central Wisconsin this weekend. So last week we talked about the regeneration, and we talked about the covenants being fulfilled in the time of the regeneration. Of course, we understand that the four covenants that God made with the Jewish people are going to be fulfilled in the millennial kingdom. That's when the fulfillment right. of those covenants uh, that God made with the Jewish people, and we do realize that God has to keep those promises that he made to the Jews, or otherwise, if he breaks the promises he made with them, he can break the promise that he made with me. And that is, uh, if I believe that God sent his son to die on the cross for my sins, and, that, and uh, he died, went to the grave, and rose again. By believing in that, I have eternal life, that Christ paid for my sins. And uh, we do have that eternal salvation, that eternal um, security and understanding. But Paul, help me to understand. So let's continue on about the millennial kingdom uh, and the future. Tell us about uh, the regeneration. When uh, What do you think the world is going to look like in the millennial kingdom? Well, Jimmy, that word regeneration, it's actually, it's a word we use so commonly in our theological vocabulary. It's actually found only two times in all of the Bible and two times in the New Testament. The one that we draw really the meaning that we use it when we talk about it theologically comes from Titus 3 verse 5. But Jesus used the other instance of that word in Matthew 19 verse 28 when he was asking, uh, when he was answering one of Peter's infamous uh, sort of mis-timed <laughs> mis, uh, questions, <laughs> yeah. when he said, See, we have left all and followed you, therefore what shall we have? Peter said. And uh, Jesus' answer was, Assuredly I say to you that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And so that word regeneration, uh, literally in the original Greek, is the idea of when there will be Genesis again. Now, words have greater meaning than mm. the sum of their parts. We realize that. But in this case, I think it really serves to illustrate well what it will be like uh, when Jesus returns and establishes his kingdom from Jerusalem in Israel for a thousand years on the earth, I believe God must redeem this world and overcome the uh, forces of evil led by Satan that he has allowed in, his, in God's sovereignty. He's allowed Satan to rule the world, but God must overthrow that rule of Satan and restore his own kingdom in the world within history and have victory within history in this world, not just in eternity future, but he must uh, take this world back and rule and reign, which is described so extensively uh, in the Old Testament prophets especially, and Jesus talked about this, and he must uh, bring back the conditions of Genesis again in this world 
and have victory over the fall. Mm. And uh, Jimmy, I always say, what what part of Genesis do we want to go back to? It's certainly not, uh, if we work our way backwards, it's not even Genesis 12 where God gave the covenant to Abram because we know Abram had a lot of ups and downs and Mm. trials and troubles even from that point on. Uh, We sure don't want to go back to Genesis 10 and 11, the the Tower of Babel and the post-Babel world. Uh, We for sure don't want to go back to the post-flood world, even though there were some wonderful and certainly significant things that happened there. I'm sure we don't want to go back to the flood year on the ark or that horrible pre-flood world uh, that uh, Jesus spoke about talking about the days of Noah mm-hmm. before the flood that were so when the world was so filled with violence and uh, absolutely corrupt before God. Uh, we don't want to go back to Genesis 5, the, the pre-flood cemetery of the world there, or chapter 4, the first murder, or chapter 3, the first sin and the fall and the curse. But of course, Jimmy, we want to go back to Genesis 1 and 2, paradise, the garden, and see that re- con- those conditions return to earth for a thousand years, and Christ ruling and reigning, and uh, Satan bound for that time, and conditions like Eden restored throughout the world once again. Yes, and uh, where that first theocratic kingdom was established in the really the first three chapters of the Bible, when we look at the last three chapters of the Bible, we'll see that reestablishment during the millennial kingdom, the theocratic kingdom with Jesus Christ ruling and reigning in the city of Jerusalem. And that's what's so exciting. I mean, when you think about this, that's that hope when we look at this. What will we be doing as Christians, Paul? Well, I believe we'll be there or we will be able to be there. The Bible does not give detailed descriptions of exactly how different groups of believers like church-age believers uh, will interact, but we have some glimpses of that. It tells us that there will be those who will reign with Christ Mm. for a thousand years in Revelation chapter 20, verse 4, and uh, it says that in verse 6 also, uh, everyone who has part in the first resurrection will reign with him for a thousand years. And there are some different passages in the New Testament epistles that speak to that issue that's, that seem to relate our rewards for us as church-age believers perhaps to uh, influence and opportunities that we will have to uh, be part of Christ's rule in the Millennial Kingdom. Right. Uh, we really get those uh, at the judgment seat of Christ when right. we... Uh, our works, those things that we have done, those crowns that we receive, um, yeah. you know, how we live our lives is so important. When you understand Bible prophecy on a practical day-to-day basis, it's relevant, so relevant, because it really does help us to understand how we should be living on a day-to-day basis and, and making decisions. And that's why uh, I like it. That's our theme of our program today, how we understand Bible and theology really prepares us not only how to live now, but how we'll be living in the future. Well, exactly. I, I love this. Uh, again, I could talk to you about this often. My father talked about that period of time, and, and it's something that uh, we uh, agree on wholeheartedly. Uh, 
So this Sunday, uh, just changing direction for a second, uh, this Sunday is Pentecost Sunday. Briefly, uh, can you give us a, a little bit of background from the Old Testament and uh, from the New Testament about Pentecost Sunday? Oh my, Jimmy, I've, I've been privileged to be writing uh, a set of two blogs uh, for the Friends of Israel, and the first of those is appearing this weekend at FOI.org on the subject of Pentecost, and as I've been studying and preparing those, I have been absolutely amazed at how incredibly significant this subject is and how much the Bible says about Pentecost. And, of course, there's also many layers built upon that in terms of the practice in Jewish life and custom and ultimately tradition through the centuries of celebrating Pentecost. We know that uh, the Feast of Pentecost fell on the 50th day after uh, the Feast of First Fruits began, as it was given to the Jewish people in Leviticus 23 and other Old Testament scriptures uh, in the Hebrew Bible. Mm. And that day was to celebrate the wheat harvest, uh, Pentecost, the, from the Greek, is a Greek word, but uh, Shavuot, uh, the Feast of Weeks, it was to be that seventh uh, seven, the seventh week, uh, the day after the seventh Sabbath from first fruits. And uh, at that time, uh, first fruits celebrating uh, barley harvest and Pentecost celebrating wheat harvest mm -hmm. really, really fit together. Uh, and they fit together beautifully in the person and promises of Christ the Messiah, our Savior and Lord who, of course, we believe rose from the dead on the Feast of First Fruits, according to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. And then, of course, he promised that on the 50th day from his resurrection, there would be the coming of the Holy Spirit in a new way to begin the age of the church. So why is it so significant for us today? Well, the Feast of Pentecost, again, as we look back at the Hebrew Bible, or as we commonly referred to it the Old Testament, we see the incredible, incredibly rich uh, significance of that day in Jewish life, in the Old Testament, and how it's been remembered, and how it's, how it's come through the years to be associated with the giving of the law, when Israel really became a nation at Mount Sinai in Exodus 19. Uh, but for us as Christians today, we know that the day of Pentecost takes on a whole new meaning in the New Testament, again, drawing on all that imagery and symbolism from the Old Testament, but it's given an entirely new purpose as it's the day when the Holy Spirit comes to indwell believers and to baptize them into one body of Christ in this church age. Excellent. Well, Paul Scharf, thank you again for joining with us. And uh, folks, look for that blog and friendsofisrael.org, FOI.org, as a matter of fact. And you can look yeah. at Paul and his sermon audio, Paul Scharf or P. Scharf on sermon audio. Go there. That's a great sermon audio.com is a great location to find his teachings or on our website. Paul, thank you again. And uh, thank you for joining with us this week. We'll join with you again as we are talking about 
aspects of Jewish life that pertain and help us in our lives as we live as believers today. Thank you so much, Jimmy. God bless. Paul Weaver joins us. He's a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary. Paul, uh, what is your actual title there? Well, I have the privilege of being an associate professor of Bible exposition, which means I get to teach through basically the whole Bible and a course on hermeneutics, how to study the Bible. We originally met Paul uh, through our uh, connection with Word of Life. Paul used to be a missionary um, and was basically the academic dean of the Bible school there in Hungary and then was mm-hmm. in New York. So he's, we've been involved with him in ministry many, many years now. So thank you for joining with us today. Oh, it's a great privilege. Thanks for the invitation. Now, you've been on the program with us before. We were talking about Dr. Charles Ryrie in a book that you wrote. And now I notice you have a new podcast entitled The Bible and Theology Matters. Give us your thoughts when creating this podcast. Well, Rick, as we've already mentioned, I have the privilege of teaching, and I love teaching students who are able to devote two to four years of their lives to studying God's Word. Yet I realize that not everyone, in fact, most people don't have that opportunity uh, to get a formal theological training, but they can listen to a podcast on their commute to work or as they get ready in the morning or while doing yard work or exercising. And so this podcast is designed to help equip anyone interested really in learning more about the Bible and theology by exposing them to incredible Bible scholars and Bible expositors. So the Bible and Theology Matters podcast is typically a 30-minute conversation with Bible scholars and Bible expositors about all things Bible and theology, and we challenge people to grow in their knowledge of the Word of God and in their relationship to the God of the Word. Well, that's an excellent thought, because not, like you said, not everybody can go to Bible school or even seminary or become a doctor, but right, we can listen to a podcast, and God does call us mm-hmm. all to be students. Well, your first episode was titled, Why the Bible and Theology Matters. For the short answer, not the 30-minute answer, but for the short answer, mm-hmm. what's the answer to that question? Well, um, as I'm sure you're aware, the title is intentionally a double entendre. We discuss issues or matters relating to the Bible and theology, but the title also is significant because Bible and theology really does matter, because what you believe determines how you behave. If you really believe something, it will impact how you behave, and I think that is why the Apostle Paul often discusses issues of doctrine and only then wrote about duty. He discusses belief and then afterwards, behavior, because what you believe really does determine how you behave. Absolutely. That's a great thought. Well, my dad used to say that your eschatology determines your theology, and I noticed that some of the first programs that you did were series on Mm -hmm. the rapture, the tribulation, and the millennium. Can you tell us why you believe that these doctrines are foundational to the Bible student as they seek to understand God's plan laid out in his word? Uh, Thanks for that question. Great question. Uh, You're exactly right. Uh, Prophecy is very important. I appreciate what you all are doing uh, with prophecy today. There are over, as you know, and your father mentioned many times, there are over 31,000 verses in the Bible Mm -hmm. that were prophetic at the time that they were written, uh, which is approximately 27% of the Bible. You know, I didn't do the math. It's someone else's math. But uh, uh, the sheer volume of prophetic Mm. passages in Scripture clearly 
indicates that prophecy is very important to God and should be very important to us as well. I'd also add that every single prophecy regarding Christ's first coming uh, was fulfilled literally and precisely as promised. So we should expect that prophecies regarding the Lord's second advent, when he comes as a conquering king, will be fulfilled literally and precisely as predicted in Scripture. And related to that, I would say, if I can say this uh, carefully, if the Jewish religious leaders at the time of Christ's first advent were well-versed in their Hebrew Bible and prophetic scripture, and not just the ones about him coming as a reigning king, which will be fulfilled in the second advent, but also those about a suffering servant in the book of Isaiah and elsewhere, uh, they would have recognized that Jesus was their Messiah, is their Messiah. And finally, the book of Revelation, uh, as you've mentioned many times, and your father as well, is the only book in the Bible that contains a specific blessing upon those that read it. So, but sadly, even with these many good reasons to study prophecy, uh, many churches and schools have de-emphasized the study of the end times. Well, that's true. That was definitely one of the reasons, or the main reason, that we started the Prophecy Today ministry, because so many people look at it and think it may be confusing. But like you said, if God put it in his word, he gave it to us for a reason. He wants us to study it, and it can be understood. It's not just a book that was put in the Bible. That's mm -hmm. not one we pay attention to, correct? Very much. We want to uh, emphasize every passage of Scripture, if it's there, it's there for a reason, and we need to study it and understand it and help others to understand it. So if we determine that the study of Bible prophecy is important, can you give us some key principles to keep in mind when we study Bible prophecy? Well, one of the hermeneutical principles is the normal, plain, literal interpretation, and mm -hmm. those words are interchangeable, usually normal, plain, literal by literal, we mean seeking to understand using the natural laws of communication uh, what the original author intended to communicate to the original recipients. Of course, the prophets were directed to record the inspired word of God. And so we use what we call a normal understanding using normal laws of communication, uh, plain understanding, and, and a literal whenever uh, Ryrie would say this, Dr. Ryrie, and I know it's probably not unique to him, when the literal sense makes common sense, seek no other sense. Hmm, that's good. And so we want to, unless there's something in the text that indicates that it's figurative or symbolic, and even symbols in the book of Revelation, symbols have literal reference. So it's not just a beautiful poem. There are actual literal reference where each of these symbols uh, refer to something. And so uh, using the natural, normal, plain, literal um, method of interpretation is very important. And I also mentioned authorial intent. I think that's crucial. Uh, that's really the only valid basis to objectively determine whose interpretation is correct. Uh, what did the original author intend to communicate under the leading and direction of the Holy Spirit? And and so it seems to me that Daniel, it was clear to him when he's reading the prophet Jeremiah, uh, in Daniel chapter 9, that he took it literally that the 70 years of Babylonian captivity were coming to an end. And so I think Daniel's a great case study or paradigm to say, okay, Daniel even understood prophecy to be interpreted literally and uh, was expecting uh, a return to the land uh, soon. And of course, that's how we should approach Daniel 9, 24 to 27 as well, and all the prophecy that hasn't been uh, literally fulfilled yet. 
we can expect it to be literally fulfilled just as the prophecies relating to Jesus' first advent were literally and concretely fulfilled. It's an excellent point. So true. And having a few key uh, principles when you're studying Bible prophecy, things that you hold to, and as you read things, and as you read and reread and reread prophetic passages, mm-hmm. it will become more clear to you. Again, like I said, God didn't put it in there as a riddle. He put it in there mm-hmm. for us to understand. Well, along mm-hmm. those lines, uh, in a world that seems to be descending into chaos, we see more mm-hmm. and more crazy things happening every day. And and it certainly can be almost discouraging sometimes when you look at it. But if you take a look at the study of Bible prophecy and the knowledge that there is a God and he does indeed have a plan that we can know, Paul, how does that comfort and or motivate you? Oh, very good. Uh, it certainly is encouraging, isn't it? Uh, knowing in the midst of difficult circumstances, knowing that we have a God who's sovereign and that nothing catches him by surprise. It is difficult days that we live in, and, and it's horrible what's happening in Ukraine and, and around the world with Christians being martyred. And I do believe the book of Daniel was is the favorite of the persecuted church uh, because they see in it that God's righteous kingdom will finally will prevail hmm. and that the wicked Gentile nations uh, will be removed and, and be judged. So we certainly aren't unique. Our generation isn't unique in the sense of facing difficulties. Uh, the Jewish people certainly taken into exile under Nebuchadnezzar faced difficult days. Uh, The Christians in the first century during the Neronian persecution, difficult days. Certainly the Thessalonian believers facing significant trials, significant tribulation, but not the tribulation or uh, the period of coming, God's coming wrath on the world. And in the midst of that, Paul, the apostle, provides them with doctrine about the rapture of the church. And then he says, encourage one another with these words, right? So prophecy of the rapture is an encouraging message. So uh, we can be reminded of that. And that helps us in difficult days. But it's also motivational, as you indicate. Uh, prophecy is certainly motivational. Uh, the doctrine of the imminent return of the Lord, that mm. Christ could return at any moment, is incredibly motivational. And we think of First John, when John says, In light of Christ's return, purify ourselves as he is pure. Uh, if we believe that Christ could return at any moment, it impacts how we behave. Uh, what we believe impacts how we behave. We want to live pure lives that uh, would make God proud and us not shrink back uh, in embarrassment at Christ's return. Uh, prophecy is also motivational in that it reminds us that we need to live in light of eternity. Uh, we're sojourners, right? We're pilgrims. This is not our final uh, place. Uh, if we live 100 years, that is a long life, but we need to live in light of eternity 100 years doesn't even compare to eternity, which leads me to my next thought. The imminent return of the Lord uh, is followed by the Bema of Christ. That's prophecy too, the judgment seat of Christ. And that too motivates us that one day we'll stand in the, before the Lord and give account for our what uh, we've been given, our gifts, our abilities, our finances, our possessions. And we want to be good stewards of that so that we're rewarded at that judgment seat of Christ, which leads also to my next point, the coming kingdom. We will be rewarded and have privileges in the coming 1,000-year reign of Christ in light of what we do uh, with what we've been stewarded, uh, what we do with what we've been given, our time, our money, our possessions, 
And so, Rick, maybe you will get the incredible responsibility to rule over Atlanta. <laughs> I probably get something much smaller, maybe uh, Pottersville. Uh, but, but Jesus said, of those who will enter the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom on earth, that is the theocratic kingdom, that they'll be greater than John the Baptist. Uh, and I think he meant by that that we're going to have this incredible privilege to rule and reign with him. And I want to be a good steward now uh, because the implications do go into the 1,000-year reign of Christ. And, and I'll close with this. Every time we pray the Lord's Prayer, we're praying prophecy, aren't we? Mm-hmm. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So every time we pray that, that prayer, we are praying for God to bring his kingdom, the literal 1,000-year reign of Christ, and bring it to earth. And we long for that day, don't we? And of course, it'll be preceded by a time of judgment on the world, a tribulation, but we look forward to the day where wickedness will be judged and righteousness will reign supreme in the coming kingdom where the King of kings and Lord of lords will rule in a righteous kingdom. Prophecy is indeed motivational. Wonderful answer. And that was really a great answer. Very inspirational in and of itself, but just the thought, you know. And and like I said earlier, sometimes we look at this world and all the things that are taking place and some of those things we look at right here on this program. Uh, But when it feels like things are out of control, realize that we have the manual, the guidebook, and we can Mm -hmm. go back to it and look at it. Well, uh, your podcast really will help people do that. It's got not only, prophecy is definitely in it, but it's not only prophecy. Could you give our listeners a way to get this podcast or where they can find it? Sure. Uh, We're on most any podcast platform that you can listen to and download your podcast. But you can also go to our website, which is simply BibleAndTheologyMatters.com. That's Bible and, spelled out A-N-D, BibleAndTheologyMatters.com. Well, Paul, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, We hope to have you back on the program again sometime soon. That'd be great. Thank you, Rick. Well, we've got to take a break. And when we come back, Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and the Legacy Series, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. And along with my brother Rick, we have been examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. You know, Rick, listening to Paul Weaver, Dr. Paul Weaver, Paul Scharf, and then of course, as we have been students of the word all these years, when you study Bible prophecy, what is one thing that stands out to you that helps you to understand uh, the Bible and as, as you're studying all aspects from Genesis to Revelation? Well, certainly one of the things that stands out to me is from Genesis all the way to Revelation, there's been a plan. There was a plan at the very beginning. Now, it seems like uh, man does his best to thwart that plan at every angle, and, and God in his sovereignty and his gentleness and sometimes with his wrath, uh, he uh, moves us along in the right direction. It's just so comforting to know that there is a plan beginning uh, all the way through the Bible. Well, it's time now, Rick, for our Legacy Series, and this is one portion of our program that people have said they appreciate so much. We've gotten so many letters and emails from people that have been sent in, and in today's Legacy Series, we begin a brand new study as we continue to look at the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. What takes place in Genesis sets the stage for the prophecies of Revelation to be fulfilled. 
The first nine chapters of the book of Genesis unfold. Today, we're going to be looking at what happened after the flood of Noah's day. We'll see how the nations came into existence, how human government was established, and the foundation of Bible prophecy. Genesis 10 and 11 sets up the scenario for the end times Bible prophecy as foretold in the prophetic book of Revelation. However, we will start our study in Genesis chapter 9, so please take your Bible and let's go to the book of Genesis as we study with Dr. Jimmy DeYoung in the Legacy Series. Take your Bibles and let's go to the book of Genesis, if you will, with me. Genesis, and remember as I reflect again and rehearse how Genesis unfolds, chapter 1 is creation, chapter 2, the special effects of creation, chapter 3, the fall of man, chapter 4, the story of Cain and Abel, chapter 5 is the genealogy, chapter 6, 7, and 8 is Noah and the flood, chapter 9 is Noah after the flood. Let's go to chapter 9 with me, if you will. Chapter 9 and verse 1. Uh, you might remember reading in chapter 8 that uh, the ark was resting on the mountains of Ararat. And there in the mountains of Ararat, Noah and his three sons and their four wives would depart the ark. And then God would give them a demand, a command as to where they were to go. I uh, have a very interesting story. One of the guests who used to come here to the end and give testimony, and one of the men that did that for a number of years was Colonel James Irwin. You might remember Jim Irwin. He was on Apollo 15. Jim was with the crew, Apollo 15. He stepped down on the moon, bought those moon rocks back. And because of that uh, time that he would come here, we developed a relationship over the years. And I had uh, the unique opportunity of uh, becoming a friend of Jim, having him tell me some of the things about the moonwalk. But what interested me as well was his advocation after he walked on the moon. He was in search of Noah's Ark. He spent almost every summer over in eastern Turkey in the mountains of Ararat, climbing the mountains looking for Noah's Ark. He told me on one trip returning from that location that he believed they knew exactly where it was. Now, you might recall that was the trip when he slipped on the ice because even in July when he was there, ice covered. I mean, it was uh, the mountains, the top, the peaks were covered, of course, with snow and ice. But ice covered most of the mountains of Ararat even throughout the summer. And so it was very difficult to find the ark. He slipped, almost went into one of the crevices, almost killed himself. And when he returned to JFK in New York, Judy and I were living in New York. When he returned there, he had his daughter call me and say, Jimmy, come get me and get me through security. And I don't want to go meet the press. Get me out of those journalists path. I don't want to talk to him. And so I got him and we came out and he said, man, thank you for saving me. He said, I didn't want to have to answer those journalists as to how I could walk on the moon, but I couldn't walk on the mountain, you know. <laughs> and, uh, but uh, he told me about this search for, for Noah's ark over there on the mountains of Ararat. One of the interesting things about that to me was, though, it gave me a better understanding because as we're going to see in just a moment, when they landed there on the mountains of Ararat, they would move south into the plains of Shinar. 
Shinar, meaning the two rivers. It's the area of biblical times, Mesopotamia, which also means the two rivers. We're talking about the Tigris and the Euphrates River. But uh, when they landed there, God appears to Noah and gives him some instruction. Look at chapter 9 and verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply, and replenish the earth. I like my translation a little bit better. Repeople the earth. One billion people had been destroyed on the earth, and now eight people God had saved, preserved, and was going to give them an opportunity to start the experiment all over. And so he wanted, he wanted Noah, Shem, Ham, and Jephthah, and their four wives to be fruitful, uh, to produce children, and to repeople the earth. That was the command. It was not to stop and stay in one place, but repeople the earth. Forget about what's happened. It's over now. Go out. Let's repeople the earth. And I believe when we're looking at Genesis chapter 1, verse 9, where it talks about God bringing the mass of land together, that was one land mass, which we called earth, which we know as the uh, surface of the, the land surface of the earth today. And I don't believe that's separated until the days of Pele, chapter 10 and verse 25, when not only the land separated, but the people and the languages separated as well. But in the process, God had given the command to Noah to go out and follow through with this repeopling the earth. Just this little sidebar, look at verse 6, because here's where he establishes human government. He established the institution of marriage in Genesis chapter 2. Over in Acts chapter 2, he will establish the institution of the local church. Here he establishes the institution of human government. Verse 6, whoso Sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God made he man. You see, God made man in his image, and to kill, to murder someone, is blasphemy against Almighty God. Now, you have to understand, and there's some complexities in understanding the Bible. We must always remember that God is omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent means he's all-powerful, all-knowing, and always present. He is God. We cannot understand God. We have no capability of understanding God. We just believe God. We take him at what he says to be what he wants to, for us to understand. We must accept that. We are not God, so we don't have an opportunity. We have no privilege to reason with God. Here he sets up human government by establishing what we would refer to today as capital punishment. He said, you murder somebody, I am going to take your life. Do you understand that? And I'm establishing a structure by which this shall be followed. Capital punishment is the epitome of human government. Oh, there's a big discussion today about capital punishment as to whether we should do it or not. Seemingly, there are always those advocates against capital punishment are the advocates for abortion. I do not understand that. I mean, if you talk about this being complex, how complex is that? And, and, and then if they even talk about it, let me just remind you of something, my dear friend. Life does not start at birth. Life does not start at conception. Life starts in the mind of God. Jeremiah chapter 1 and verse 5. God said, I chose you 
Before you came out of your mother's womb, before your mother conceived you, I chose you in eternity past in my mind to be a prophet to the nations. So that's where life began. He establishes human life in his mind in eternity past. But he says, if you kill someone that I have created in my image, I'm going to have to take your life as well. Capital punishment. You know, basically, human government has two roles, and that's all. To protect us from outward attack and to protect us from inward destruction. That's all human government is for, according to the planners of this human government that was established in the United States of America. Oh, we've taken it much farther than that. You know, it is so bad. But here's human government. Now, you say, well, what about war? That's killing people. Well, I understand that I said the complexities. God does justify war. King David prayed to God and said, may my fingers be used for fighting. May my hands be used for killing. And so there is a justification for for war. And and we're not going to get into that subject. But I'm simply saying this is the location where God establishes human government. Now go over to chapter 10. And verse 1, and I want to show you how what we see here is the beginnings of uh, obedience to what God said to do. Genesis chapter 10 and verse 1. And let me just say, as I start to read chapter 10, I want you to know chapter 11 is going to give the details. Chapter 10 is a genealogy. We're looking at a genealogy. This is not advancing history here. It's simply telling you what's going to happen. When we get to chapter 11, you'll see that the people are of one language and in one location. And God's going to come and confuse their languages and cause them to spread out across the world. That's chapter 11. That's making progress after chapter 9. And they're going to be doing what God told them to do. Howbeit, he's going to have to force them to do it. Chapter 10 is explaining that. So don't say that as you read Genesis chapter 9, then chronologically chapter 10, and then chapter 11. That's not the case. Chapter 11, verse, verses, uh, excuse me, the first nine verses are dealing with what is going to happen in chapter 10 as an explanation of how that all happens. But let me look at chapter 10 with you first because I want to set up where I'm going. Now these are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Jepheth, and unto them were sons born after the flood. Notice, here's the first son, Jepheth. The sons of Jepheth were Gomer and Magog. Oh, pretty interesting. Keep reading. Skip a couple. Meshach and Tubal. Go to the last one in verse 3. Tagarma. Wow, have we heard of those guys before? These are sons of Jepheth, grandsons of Noah. Magog, Meshach, Tubal, Gomer, Tagarma. They go forth as grandsons doing what God told them to do. Now, after, after chapter 11, verses 1 to 9 takes place, notice what happens in verse 5 of chapter 10. By these were the isles of the Gentiles divided in their lands, everyone after his language, after their families, in their nations. Now, you understand what I'm saying to you? Go here to chapter 11 in just a moment. Verse 7. Here's God speaking. He said, go to, let us go down. And that proves the Trinity, by the way, by there. Go to, let us go down there and confound their languages that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of all the earth and they left off building the city therefore the name of it is called Babel because the Lord did there confound the languages of all the earth and from thence did the Lord scatter them abroad upon the face of the earth chapter 11 verse 1 says and the whole earth was of one language and one speech 
as we read chapter 10, verse 5, it says, they go to a certain real estate, piece of real estate, geographical location. There they will establish their families, develop their language, because the one language would be divided into many languages. And that would cause them to scatter upon the face of the earth. And notice what it says in verse 5. And they brought their nations into existence. The beginning of nations is taking place 4,500 years ago. And they basically are put in place by the languages they will speak. Languages will play a key role. A line in the sand is not the true border. It's the language that is spoken in those language groups that help establish the nations. It's after the one language was confused by God when he came down there at Babel. Human languages were used 4,500 years ago to establish the borders of all the nations of the world. These nations that came into existence right after the flood of Noah's day will be the nations which play a key role in the end-of-times scenario that can be found in Bible prophecy. Next week in our study, we'll see that one of those nations in end-time prophecy was established by Ishmael, Abraham's son. I didn't say the Arab world, but one nation that was fathered by Ishmael. This truth is key to understanding Bible prophecy, and you do not want to miss our next study next week. Well, I do trust that you will be here with us next week when we come back to the Legacy Series. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, Rick and I will have a conversation about today's program right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. I'm Ruth Kramer with Mission Network News. The World Bank extends one more year of financial aid to Lebanon despite political bickering. Inflation reached 206% in April, and Lebanon's currency dropped yet again last week. There are shortages on everything from electricity to fuel to bread. Heart for Lebanon offers help for today and hope for tomorrow. Ask God to strengthen and encourage believers. They're staying in the country to care for people in need. And what are you doing at 111 today? While the Alliance for the Unreached invites you to set aside a few minutes to pray for the unreached at 111 for the next 33 days. The challenge begins on the International Day for the Unreached on Pentecost Sunday, June 5th. Marv Newell, Executive Director for the Alliance for the Unreached, encourages you to learn about different unreached groups and pray specifically for them. The movement brings awareness that roughly a third of the world's population has been denied access to the gospel. Links and more at our website. Mission Network News, a service of One Way Ministries. I'm Ruth Kramer. Every believer needs to understand Bible prophecy. Whether you're a novice or a student, we are here to help you. Just visit prophecytoday.com and click on the link for the Prophecy Bookstore. There you will find a large selection of CD sets, DVDs, and books for the Bible prophecy student written by Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and other prominent scholars. While you're there, be sure to check out Dr. DeYoung's latest series called Presidents, Politics, and Prophecy. This series examines how God has used human leaders in general and specifically the last seven U.S. presidents to set the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. 
this was shot on location in Washington, D.C. and is available on DVD or as a 10-hour audio series on CD. Be sure to check back often for special deals. You can visit prophecytoday.com and click on bookstore, or you can go directly to prophecybookstore.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr., and uh, you're listening to a program where we, my brother and I, examine current events in the light of God's prophetic word. And we have been doing that over the last hour and a half. Rick, today, I think the theme of the program has been really how we look at God's word and what it means to us, Bible and theology. That's right, Jimmy. And what does that theology mean to us? What are we going to do to act on it? And I think there's been so many good things said on the program today about how our theology should dictate how we act, how we are going to live our life. I love what Paul said. And I think today on our program, because usually in the look at the book, we focus back on what Ken Timmerman says. And folks, you've been listening to us for a long time. And if you haven't, this is your first time. Uh, We have focused on Bible prophetic events in the future that happen after the rapture of the church. But as we listen today to Ken Timmerman, David Dolan, we focus on the Jewish people. There's a reason why we do that. There's a reason why we focus on each one of these stories. And as we listen to Paul Scharf and Paul Weaver, Dr. Paul Weaver, we understand that by reading God's word, that there is a specific plan for the future and studying understanding it. Uh, I like what you said, Rick, as we were, uh, as you interviewed Dr. Weaver. It's not a, what did you say? It's not a puzzle. You know, it's not a trick puzzle, but you do have to study God's word to understand what he's trying to communicate with us. That's right. He lays it all down right there. And as you read it and as you study it more, it makes sense. I know uh, part of our ministry, and, and you've alluded to it earlier, you know, we learned a lot from our father uh, as we saw him study and we saw him put this together, but it just continues. The more you read, the more you understand, and then things just confirm. Uh, you know, as you go on through Scripture and you see prophecies being fulfilled, that confirms what you're reading, and then you, you, you know, you can certainly extrapolate that into the future, which gives us a lot of peace and a lot of comfort. I also feel. Uh, Jimmy, we do look at a lot of current events, and so we spend a lot of time looking at what's going on in Ukraine or in Israel or in Iran, but it is very interesting. Sometimes I'll get a report or I'll hear a report, Jimmy, and it just motivates me to think, boy, this is getting very close. These are the things that the Bible says are going to take place in the end times after the tribulation, and it looks like it's happening right now. So we do it not just because we're news junkies, but we do it because we want to be motivated and excited and comforted by the fact that there is this plan, and then doing that, how then should we live? Yes. You know, there were many teachers, many prophetic prophecy Bible teachers. And it's just not Dr. Jimmy DeYoung that came up with this. It's not just Dr. Charles Ryrie or Dr. Paul Weaver. It's men of God who understand looking at the complete word of God. One of the things that Paul Scharf repeated, he said, history. I'm always reminded that history is his story, God's story. And as you're reading the scriptures, you're studying through uh, what's taking place, and you're realizing that this is God's plan. It's his sovereign plan. He's in control. 
And from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21, we understand that it's God's plan. It's His uh, what he has put in place. He's helped us to understand and the prophecies that were fulfilled in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, 500 pertaining to Christ's first coming. The fulfillment of those prophecies helps us to understand and realize that the future prophecies, 500 left to be fulfilled. If you think about it, uh, pertaining to his second coming, pertaining to the millennial kingdom in the future, pertaining to the end of the earth, uh, as we know it, a new heaven and a new earth, the end of the book of Revelation. When you look at Jesus Christ coming to establish his kingdom on this earth, a theocratic kingdom, we understand that all of that is in the future. And I like, Rick, you said something about when we look at these events that are happening today, we examine them, we see how they fit in and coincide with God's words, the very nations that are talked about, the very countries that are lining up, a a world uh, systematic way of thinking that is anti-God. It is used to help us to to somewhat be excited about the fact that we're getting closer to the end. But as you study this and you see these things coming to an end, you do realize that, wow, uh, God has uh, could have chosen anything else to tell the world about his plan of salvation, but he chose you and I to carry forth that message. And that's what Bible prophecy, that's what understanding the Word of God, the Bible, theology, how God has laid out a systematic way of doing things, and it's in his Word. That's really the takeaway that we should get, that God wants a restored relationship with mankind, and he has provided a way for that to happen. That's right, Jimmy. One of the things that uh, my church focuses on is gospel conversations. The pastor even has that as his license plate tag, gospel conversations. And basically what he's saying with that is look at ways to share this gospel. And we've been talking about the end times and the imminency of the return of Christ and the rapture of the church. And we want to be having gospel conversations, telling people about uh, in, a, in an urgent way, but in telling people about the, the good news of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know, I always tell people, don't start off with Bible prophecy. That is good. That's what motivates us. But where we should start is really, like you said, a gospel conversation about what Jesus Christ has done in your life, your testimony. Did he change your life? Has he changed you uh, in, in the way that you think and how you operate every day? Well, understanding the Bible and theology, as Paul Weaver said, should help us to make decisions, to live in a world where there's no hope, where there's no, uh, where, where it's a dark world. That really understanding God's plan should help us and motivate us to carry on to finish that race as paul talked about to finish the course to achieve that award that we will receive when we sit down before the judgment seat of christ and that determines what we'll be doing into the future as paul sharf talked about today well rick thanks for uh, joining with me today i look forward to joining with you again next week on the program well, my pleasure, Jimmy, and this week, this program in particular has been very motivating to me and makes me want to make sure that I'm living my life in the light of God's soon return. Well, everything that we've seen in the current events and what's happening in the world, and as we study God's particular uh, 
prophecies concerning the future really does help us to understand that the rapture of the church cannot be far away. Let's keep looking up. Until. Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Jay Johnson inviting you to join us again next week for more of Prophecy Today. Prophecy Today is a listener-supported production of Shofar Communications in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Thank you.